it's really, really nice to be back here. This is my fourth time uh, on a Sunday, I might. I've been here other times as well, but it's, it's really, it's a pleasure, and to see you all here is just glorious. So, I am in love with ethical culture, and I'm both grateful for what ethical culture has brought to my life, and also excited about the potential of ethical culture for bringing dramatically good things to the life of this world that we're a part of. So today I'd like to share with you some ideas I've been wrestling with and thinking about uh, that I hope you'll find helpful in your efforts to live ethically. Right? The first idea is about the nature of character and about how our characters influence the way we live and our level of effectiveness uh, in our lives. Uh, the second is about our commitments and about how the strength of our commitments can free us to live more successfully ethical lives. And the third idea is about the nature of reality. I like to work small. The nature of reality <laughs> and about what may be above the horizon of our normal experience. And since all of these are really about how we live and the choices that we make and the efforts that we engage in in our lives, I'll be working on these things by sharing some stories to kind of illustrate the things that I've been wrestling with, and I hope you'll find them helpful too. So the first story, being a bit self-referential, is a story about me. Two days ago at the National Leaders Council, we were having uh, some discussion, and after the discussion uh, in the kitchen, I was chatting with people, and I uttered these words, more than anything else in life, I would like to do great things. One of the remarkable things about that utterance is that was the first time I had ever said it. And that was the first time that thought actually came to me and became conscious in my awareness as an important part of how I'm trying to live my life. Now, I guess that's kind of remarkable in its own right, except if you were to go back a few decades, maybe lots of decades, um, you would see a very different person, I'm hoping, than the person who's standing here today. That's because I was a child who was very reticent and isolated and quiet, somebody who didn't like to be on teams, somebody who didn't really enjoy mixing it up with people, being in social situations. Right? I was a solitary kind of kid, smart enough, I enjoyed books and reading and things like that, but I really didn't get out there and mix it up very much with people. I was shy and a bit scared, and it was my good fortune to be faced with a number of people who saw something in me that I didn't notice myself and were kind enough to point those things out. Unfortunately, they were good things. I mean, you know, the, the, some of the other ends I can do without anyway. Um, but the ones that are standing out for me today are people that said, you know, that was really smart, what you said. Or, you know, it seems like you have something that you can really offer here to this effort, and we're really pleased to have you part of this. It's those small things that can help a person start thinking about, who am I anyway? 
And what does this say about me? However, it wasn't quite enough. Uh, in college, I still did the same kind of thing, just kind of moping along and being dragged into situations as opposed to really having a sense of where I'm going and what I want to do. Um, I did wind up getting pulled into a relationship um, and uh, in the midst of it, I uh, was in an unhappy place. My girlfriend and I were having lots of disagreements and, and troubles. And so we went to the chaplain of the school that we were with to talk to him about it. And so he gave us a personality test to get some handle on how we were. This is one of those sort of things. And when we went to get the results, we were both there together. And so he starts reading her results first. And it's all very cut and dry, no big surprises and all. And then he starts reading mine. And it starts out by something like, you are a real go-getter. Right. Type A personality. I said, what the hell? Come on. And it made it look like I was aiming to be a business executive. Right? Now, mind you, I hated corporate America. Right? I, I thought making money was an evil. And that, if anything, I should be out there just kind of lying around in the grass, you know, enjoying the sun, playing a few tunes on the guitar, and just hoping to eat enough so that I didn't starve, right? Nice low level. Keep it under the radar. But there it was. And I still struggle with this. I remember going on a date with someone, and afterwards, her complaining to me. And her complaint was, you know, you seem like such a nice guy. And then we go out, and you have views, and you talk about them, and they're odd. It was terrible. It started to get me thinking, you know, well, you know, um, maybe I'm not quite at the same pace or thinking about the same kind of things as lots of people that I'm coming in contact with, and what about that? What about that? And over the course of years, I've had enough of those kind of experiences of people noticing things that have drawn out new pieces of my life that I'm starting to get a different perspective about who I am and what I'm about. All right, so this brings me to the question of character. You know, what do you think about when somebody says you have character? Right? In common language, it goes two ways, doesn't it? Right? On the one end, we think about our character as that slowly, painstakingly developed part of ourselves that is pretty firm and pretty permanent. Right? Those pieces that we draw upon when we want to understand that we're doing the right thing and, and that kind of give us an impression of uh, that people that know us now also knew us before would say, okay, I, I recognize in this person some of the same thoughts and behaviors and ideas and ideals that they might have had in the past. Our characters on the one end, we had this permanent quality that we develop and one that is hopefully built on a foundation of goodness, right? We're trying to do, get the good aspects together to make our character a good character. But what about the other common application of the word character? Don't we all know characters, right? People who just, for whatever reason, are letting it hang out. Not always in a nice way or a good way, right? I mean, there's plenty of people that we would describe as characters that we may not want to invite to our homes, right? In ethical culture, you need both, all right? Goodness without liveliness is going nowhere. And liveliness without goodness is going nowhere good.
right? But how do you develop a lively goodness? Right? That's the challenge of ethical culture. And that is the piece that has been with us since the beginning, hasn't it? Right? Uh, Felix Adler, very big on the purpose of ethical culture is to develop ethical personalities. And ethical personalities are people that are good and people that are lively and people that are connected. Right? That's the, that's the goal. And so when we're thinking about our impact on the world, those things that we can do that enhance our liveliness and enhance our goodness, especially in our interactions with each other, are the pieces that really can make life sing. You know, at this point, thinking back to what things were like, and had I been left alone all those years, I shudder at how miserable I would be this year. And but I'm not. And for whatever reason, those things on that personality test about being a go-getter and charging along seem to be a lot more true of me than I realized and seem to be the kind of things that energize my daily life. Uh, this past year, I've been faced with a number of challenges that have really called into question, you know, how much can I do? How engaged can I be? And what has been really helpful for me personally is the recognition that when something big comes up, responding to it, engaging with it, almost always works for the better. Right? That's an important learning in my life. And I think an important learning for us in ethical culture. When we stand too far away from things, we lose the opportunity to really live. So let's think about the story of us now. Um, I was uh, happy to notice that this society and the Westchester Society have a lot more in common than I had realized before. Um, we uh, started earlier than Washington, I believe, 1921. Um, but we really didn't have our own building until 1963-64, which is, I believe, when this building was uh, put up looking at the, the history. And there were aspects of the way people went about getting the communities together and getting a home that I think have a, a lot in common. And so that's going to be part of the story that I want to talk about. Thing is, I want to talk about this in relation to the idea of commitment as well and how commitment plays out in how we live. And to do that, I'd like to share a story actually from someone else. Uh, I don't know if anyone familiar with the uh, book Kitchen Table Wisdom, Stories That Heal? Um, I'm not that familiar with it, but uh, member Alice Marcus uh, handed me a photocopy of a, uh, one section of it and said, I think it might be interesting for us to talk about during a colloquy some morning. And I was really quite taken by it. So here's the story. Uh, it's uh, it's called uh, Kitchen Table Wisdom, It's Stories That Heal. The author is Rachel Naomi Remen, MD. And this particular um, section is called Attached or Committed. And it involves the story of a young man who got separated from his skiing party and spent three days in the cold before they found him and rescued him. 
Now, the downside about spending three days in the cold, if you survive it, is it tends to leave problems behind. And in his case, he developed very bad frostbite in one foot. Initially, they tried to treat it, to try to help him save his foot. But over the course of months, it became clearer and clearer that that could not work. And whatever they tried was not taking care of the problem with his foot. And so they started the next uh, collection of discussions about removing his foot, amputating. Thing is, this man could not face the amputation and refused to sign any papers permitting the doctors to remove his foot. And as he got closer and closer to death, because that was the only way to save his life, his family and friends became more and more frantic and troubled, his doctors too. So finally, and now I'll read, his fiancée, overwhelmed by the possibility of her beloved's death, was driven beyond her endurance. Weeping, she tore her engagement ring off her finger and thrust it on the swollen black little toe of his right foot. I hate this damn foot, she sobbed. If you won't, uh, if you want this foot so much, why don't you marry it? <laughs> You're going to have to choose, and you can't have us both. Now that was the moment Think about it for yourselves. Imagine yourselves there. That was the moment that turned the tide. Later that day, after reflecting, he agreed to sign the papers. His foot was taken. He healed up from that, got a prosthesis, and years later, they were married. They seemed to be doing pretty well. How important that act was, right? And what did it signify? It signified that it was his commitment that was saving his life. He was attached to his foot, literally. <laughs> and the thought of losing that foot was just so impossible to bear. He didn't imagine he could live without it. But the idea of losing his commitment was also something he couldn't live without, and ultimately the more important thing. What we commit to draws us out of ourselves. What we commit to gives us a sense of potential and possibility that can save us from the attachments that can pull us back. And don't we all have them? It, aren't our lives really characterized so much by being pulled by the things that we're attached to and would do better without? Right? Think of our daily routines, you know, the driving around, the endless shopping, food stores with stuff filled with everything, mindless TV, which I like, but mindless TV. <laughs> so many things are distracting us from the important and the vital the things that we want to live for. Right. Commitment can help us tie to something that helps us really live, not just survive. 
And those are in two ways. When we commit to an ideal, for instance, let's take ethical culture, right? Uh, the ideal that, uh, of people being worthy and unique. When we commit to that kind of ideal, that gives us something to aim for, right? That's our North Star. It also gives us a touchstone, right? So that when we're screwing up, we can get some sense about it because we can feel our difference. We can see how far apart we are from what we're, where we want to be and where we are. You know, one of the things that was really striking to me in learning to become a leader was the number of times I was faced with challenges and that it was the commitment that would save me in the challenge and it was the pulling away from making a commitment that would doom me and not allow me to go forward. So one case in particular, uh, lay leadership summer school, happening this summer, by the way, 2012 in uh, North Carolina. I hope some of you guys are planning to come. I understand Washington has a couple people already. We'd love to have even more. Anyway, I was an attendee at the first summer school in 1996, and one of the exercises we had was to, as a small group to uh, put together a skit that was kind of somehow demonstrating, I forget exactly what it was even, but demonstrating something about our, our week at the mountain and, and what we learned and all that kind of thing. And we wound up having a big controversy because one of the people in the group had this idea that we should have an invisible elephant in the room that we were all working around and thought this was really hilarious and great. And I see something laughing, it's not a bad idea, right? However, half the group, almost half the group, now about half the group, uh, thought this was not such a great thing and didn't want it at all. So we're going back and forth, going back and forth, going back and forth. So finally, we can't reach a consensus, so we decide to have a vote. There are an odd number of people in the room. Vote, 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 vote. It comes around tied three to three. Guess who number seven was? <laughs> And to my shame, instead of saying, I think it's a bad idea, I said, I can't decide. Where was the commitment? It was gone, right? As a result of that, we had schlock for a skit. It was embarrassing, <laughs> right? Not only that. I know the people in that group, and even now, this many years later, it's hard to face them without a twinge. <laughs> so now I vote. All right. Now I will speak up. All right. Story of us. So, back to us being in the society, attachment, commitment, everything. Dr. Nancy Jennison who was uh, mentioned earlier before, was a very interesting person. How many know her story? Oh, good bunch of you, great. All right, um, I had forgotten that I knew her story. I was actually, uh, the, the, the story that I read again uh, last night was from uh, uh, Tapestries, uh, you know, one of the curriculum that is developed by the AU. And I was on the committee that was working with Tapestries, and so I knew the story. I just had forgotten that I knew it, and anyway. So she was a, um, somebody who became a doctor at like the turn of the century when that was really unusual. She was a professional person who decided rather than 
make a family and settle down, would really pursue her profession. And when she retired, she was a member of the West Washington Ethical Society, now I got me doing it, uh, Washington Ethical Society, who really dedicated much of her time and attention to the society in a special kind of way. All right? I mean, the thing that people saw most was that she was taking care of the garden that was in front of that building, mowing the lawn, like keeping the lawn trim and putting flowers in. But she also thought, you know, we really need a bigger building. We need a bigger place for us as our home. And I would like to start a fund to get that going. And so she would do these little fundraisers, a dollar here, a dollar there, a dollar here, a dollar there, for years, for years. The thing is, that's the kind of thing that is a sign of commitment, isn't it? That you say, I want something, and I'm going to keep working at it. And I'm going to keep working at it. Now, in her case, what people didn't know is that she wasn't relying only on the funds earned through bake sales and plant sales uh, for this fund, but that she had worked many, many years and had been very, very frugal. And so it was after she died and after the memorial was passed that they learned that she actually was sending about $400,000 to the Washington Ethical Society to help them get started with the building. Now, in 1960-whatever, that was a lot of money. Right? Still not enough to build a building even then, but certainly enough to pay off the old mortgage, certainly enough to get a down payment on something really good. And that's what made it possible for people to build this building for the Washington Ethical Society. You didn't have to take over somebody else's building and try to figure out where the closets were. You got to build your own. Make your own home. Put a place, a flag in the ground, if you will, for ethical culture right from the start. Now, my society went through some similar things at the same time. Fewer bake sales. Uh, they had a couple of really wealthy people. Uh, unfortunately, one of those wealthy people was uh, an architect who uh, designed the building and chose the site, uh, which built on a spring was problematic in a few ways. <laughs> Largest being, uh, this is the early 60s, slab construction, and they had this new idea for uh, hot air heating where they would put a cardboard tube down and then pour the concrete over it. Really nice, right? Very efficient and all that. Except that when the water came up, the tubes collapsed. And so then we're talking hot water. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But our buildings have some really common things, right? I mean, one of the things is we noticed that there are times when our buildings take more time and attention away from things than we would like. Right? Uh, as we speak, they're trying to figure out what to do about the roof um, and also uh, some of the windows that really need to be replaced and what, how that's going to work out. You know, these are the kind of things that are kind of taking us away from our mission a little bit. On the other end, they give us a home, a home base, a place to start out from. And if we can continue to manage this from a commitment point of view, that is knowing what it is we want to do, knowing what it is that's valuable to us, that we care about, we can manage our buildings that way too. Right? So the things that we might be attached to that we realize we can do without because it's more important for us to follow our commitment, we can let go of. Right? And the things that we need to do to ensure that we're 
having a building that can do the things we need it to do to work our mission, we can get there too. So the last story actually is a story that hasn't been written yet because it's unfolding as we speak and involves all of us. What do you make of all of this? We're in this lovely space on this lovely day. It's an ethical society that's been here for decades and hopefully will be here for many more decades to come. We are here. And how are we feeling right now about what's to happen next? Are we feeling energized with hopefulness? Are we feeling a sense of readiness to engage in directedness? Are we feeling the fire of commitment and an anticipation of the enjoyable work ahead of us? Truth is, oftentimes we're not quite there, right? I don't know about you, on a Sunday morning, I'm lucky to be awake. <laughs> and by this time on Sunday morning, you know, if I haven't fallen asleep, that's pretty good. But we want more of that, don't we? Um, I believe it was Plato who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think it was Groucho Marx who said, the unlived life is not worth examining. <laughs> it's that second piece that I'm concerned about, right? I remember quoting myself as saying, I want to be doing great things. And it's hard to do great things unless you really got some energy and got some things going on. Um, when I was in college um, is when I learned I was an atheist. Um, this was a problem because I was getting a degree in philosophy of religion and on my way to seminary. And there were certain aspects of this that I thought would be bad for my career. I later found out that there were a lot of people in seminary that had a similar thing going on, so I shouldn't have worried, I guess. Um, but I, I thought I really should be rethinking things a little bit. But even so, this happened in the midst of, of courses. One of the courses I took was a course on uh, theology. And the, uh, the instructor was talking to us about how in the early days of the Christian church, um, there was the belief that Jesus had died and was going to be resurrected soon. You know, like in their lifetime. And as the years started to stretch on, people got more and more concerned that that was getting to be kind of a long time. And one of the things that seemed to have developed during that period of time is a different way to look at history and what's going on in the universe. Um, you know, in, in Christian theology, as I understand it, and believe me, I'm not well studied at this, but as I understand it, you kind of have a beginning with a creation, and then you have an end uh, that starts the eternal uh, life outside of this finite kind of earth, right? So part of the idea of Jesus was his return was to bring an end to the life that we knew, the life of pain and sin and all that kind of stuff, and to start this new eternal life. But Jesus came, went away, and then there's this gap. So what do you make of that, right? So one of the ideas that came up was that, well, the truth is the eternal life has started, right? Jesus was here, right? So that means that brought the end to that era for those who believe. 
So now what you have is a bifurcated reality. For those who don't get it, they're stuck in the temporal and the normal. For those who do, they have one foot in eternity right now. Now I heard this, and that was the last nail in the coffin of my atheism. I said, come on, you know, you're just making this up, <laughs> right? To try to explain the, the, the disappointment that you have here, right? So forget it. But the idea still stuck with me. Doesn't that mean something to us too? I mean, we're living these normal lives. Do we really believe that that is all there is? Or do we believe that there is potential beyond our horizon that we can participate in? Right? The story of us is the story of how we press ourselves out of our usual lives. How we lift ourselves into a world of potential that we didn't expect to see. It was that story that was told to me by the instructor uh, for the, uh, the, the test taking that said that was smart. Right? It was that reality that the camp director was tapping into that helped me see that maybe I could bring something good to a leadership effort. All right? Over and over again, we can be faced with those glimmers of a reality that is significantly better than normal. Not only that, we have the opportunity to be the ones who are pointing that out to others. Ethical culture is looking to develop the ethical personalities of everyone. And we know that when we help people be lively and good, that they'll work together and that good things will happen. And so my wish for you today is that at this moment, you are feeling a bit of the fire of that commitment, that you're reflecting on those moments in your lives where someone has noticed in you a potential that you hadn't seen and that drew something out for you. And that after you leave here today, not only will you have a bit of a lift from that memory, but you'll have a little bit of energy to be sending that message to someone new.